All right, today we will uh, finish the book of Titus. Next week is the first Sunday of Advent. Can you believe it? You know what that means? It means Christmas will be here before you realize it. Um, and so we will um, begin our journey um, through Advent, and that will be our theme going forward after today. So today, as we come to the end of our journey through the book of Titus, uh, I want to give just a brief recap. Uh, really, Titus is one of those characters in the Bible that he's got his own book, um, but there's not just a whole lot uh, said about Titus. Uh, this letter written to Titus, Titus was a Gentile so both of his parents were Gentiles. Remember Timothy? Timothy's father was a Greek, but his mother was a Jew. Uh, Titus was a Gentile. He was a pastor who greatly helped the Apostle Paul in his mission to plant Christianity throughout the Mediterranean world. Titus proved himself a valuable asset to Paul in his mission to the Jerusalem church, dealing with the controversy of requiring new believers to be circumcised and to keep the law. Uh, we see reference to this in Galatians 2.3. He also helped Paul greatly with the church at Corinth. Uh, when Paul and the church at Corinth became, um, there was a division. There was uh, some problems there. Uh, and that church turned against Paul. Well, Paul sent Titus to Corinth to help facilitate restoration. And, and Titus did exactly that between the Corinthian church and the Apostle Paul. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. And then Titus was sent by Paul to various places to do the work of building up the church. And according to church tradition, Titus eventually returned to the island of Crete and became the bishop or the overseer of the church on that island until he was well advanced in age. Today we're going to look at the last few verses of the book of Titus. Our text will be Titus chapter 3 beginning in verse 9 through verse 15. Follow with me as I read our text today. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I sin Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. 
We thank you that you have preserved it for us today. Though it was not written to us, it was absolutely written for us, and we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us learn from this inspired piece of Scripture kept for us, that we would be a people fruitful in our lives, bearing the life, manifesting the very life of Christ in us, the hope of glory, as a witness to this world in need of the Savior. Father, we thank you that in your grace you have saved us, you have given us life in Christ. Help us, Father, as your body to manifest the life of our head, who is Jesus Christ. It's in that name, in the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So, if you remember when we began our journey through Titus, Paul is writing to Pastor Titus. He's instructing him to go throughout the cities of Crete and appoint elders in all of the church. There are evidently people who have crept in, who have come in. They're uh, teaching doctrines contrary to what Paul uh, has been teaching. And so the need for elders was the need for men, approved men, qualified men, to be able to oversee the churches, to guard the flock so that these false teachers, false doctrines don't come in and infiltrate and corrupt the church. And so we've gone through uh, three chapters, almost all of three chapters that, consi- that make up the book of Titus. And today we're going to come to the end of this little book and look at the final things that Paul instructs Titus concerning uh, his ministry as a pastor, an elder, a shepherd, an overseer of the flock of God. And he begins here in verse 9, instructing Titus. And remember, he's telling Titus this so that Titus can teach these things to the church. And he begins by instructing him to avoid foolish, unprofitable, and useless disputes. Titus chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Avoid foolish disputes, Paul writes. These are disputes over things that are inconsistent with the Christian character. And have no consequence to the Christian faith and spiritual life. These things, in fact, not only are unproductive and useless, but they actually can become a hindrance to those who are in the faith. And so Paul says, avoid these things that are not only unprofitable and useless, but but they can become hindrances to the church. This word foolish is also translated in some of our English Bibles as the word stupid. Kids, what's that word to live by we have? What's it say? Who can tell me? What is it? Is He who hates correction is stupid. The Bible says that. 
And that's what the word means. And so here, Paul is saying, avoid these foolish, these stupid disputes. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 through 26, Paul writes to Timothy, another pastor, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So Paul writes to Timothy, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. So don't get into foolish talking. Don't get into these things that create strife, but rather be thankful, give thanks. Foolish talk and foolish disputes are sinful. This is what the Bible teaches us. And the Christian is not to be ensnared by them. Uh, this is why it's good for some of us to avoid uh, long conversations on social media. You get sucked into foolish, stupid disputes that are not doing anything but creating unprofitable, unfruitful, useless waste of time and, and actually can become a hindrance to people. So I'm not saying don't, don't engage on social media. I'm saying you need to be careful how you engage. Sitting there going back and forth and arguing with somebody is unprofitable, it's fruitless, it's useless, and the Bible calls it, it, it foolish. Much rather private message that person, tell them, let's have a private conversation. If they're not willing to do that, then you're not, certainly not going to convince them by having an argument. This is the world we live in. You know, there was a time through most of human history where if you were going to have a dispute with someone, you, you had to have it face to face. Or you did it through a letter that would take months to get to you. <laughs> and by the time it got to you, there was probably a level of cooling down and more reasonable minds could prevail. It's interesting, uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were, were not in agreement over many things. And, and in the founding of this country, they were opposed at many levels about the political future of this country and the things that should or should not be put in the Constitution and the things that should ultimately govern the colonies and this, these United States. But Jefferson and Adams, for the, in their entire lives, up until their deaths, they corresponded. Adams lived in Massachusetts. Jefferson lived in Virginia, and they corresponded by letter, and through their letters, they had dialogue, and they talked about their disputes, and they talked about their differences, but they didn't do it foolishly. They didn't do it in a way that was unprofitable or useless. They did it in a constructive way that we still have a record of today that we can learn from. 
And so Paul is writing here and he says, avoid these foolish disputes because they're useless and they're not profitable for anyone. And rather, he says, the, the believer is to be gentle to all. He should be able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. It is to this end that we are commanded to do this in such a manner that God would perhaps grant them repentance that they may know the truth. And so there is a right way to, to discuss. There's a right way to actually challenge someone on their beliefs and on the things that they are saying. And the, the goal is to do that in hopes that God may perhaps grant repentance. You can't talk someone into repentance. Only God can grant them repentance. And so as we're tempted, and it is a temptation that's real, you know, as I am tempted to argue with people about things, I need to remember, especially if I'm talking to an unbeliever, I can't talk them into repentance. And so we give them the truth, and God has to be the one to change their heart. Then Paul goes on, Titus chapter 3, verse 9, and he says, avoid foolish disputes, but he also says, avoid genealogies. Well, that's kind of weird, genealogies. Um, and he's, he's not talking about Ancestry.com. Uh, he's talking about the Jews who had elaborate records and genealogies. And these genealogies basically served as spiritual pedigrees for men who would use them to promote and to puff themselves up. And so depending on your spiritual pedigree that was based on your genealogy, you might believe you had more spiritual authority, more power, more whatever than somebody else who didn't have the same pedigree or genealogy that you had. Again, Paul writes to Timothy because this was a common thing in the churches as the Judaizers would come and these Jews would come and they were very proud of their spiritual pedigree. So Paul writes to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, "...nor give heed to fables." and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So what we want to do is cause godly edification. These foolish disputes, these wranglings over endless genealogies didn't do any of that. They actually did the exact opposite. And so what we need to understand, and this is what Paul was conveying to the believers through his letters. And this is what you and I need to understand today, that our worth, our qualification, and our authority must first and ultimately come from the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who gives us our authority. Our worth is not in ourselves. It, our worth is in Christ because God has made us his children, made us his very own. These do not come from some natural pedigree. Our worth, our qualification, our authority doesn't come from some natural pedigree we falsely believe 
gives us some spiritual advantage or authority because they do not. That comes through the Lord. Disputing over endless genealogies or one's spiritual pedigree does not lead to godly edification in faith. Instead of building up, it actually tears down the body. And so we don't do a lot of disputing over genealogies as far as I know. Um, but we do sometimes get into um, trying to qualify our credentials. Oh, well, here's why I'm qualified to speak to this. Here's why I can uh, have uh, an authoritative opinion on this because uh, I've got these letters behind my name or I went to this school or I got this certificate. That's all fine and good. But none of that gives us the right to enter into these foolish disputes that actually begin to create strife and contention and tear down the body instead of build up the body. Then he goes on and he says, avoid contentions. Avoid strife, quarrels, and contentions. These foolish Disputes become points of contention that create strife between people, both inside the body of Christ and outside. We're to avoid foolish contentions leading to strife, whether inside or outside the body. So we're not to, we're not to get in these arguments and disputes with the world who are blind. They're in darkness. So it does no good trying to convince someone in darkness and, and, and argue with them about seeing something. They can't see it. They're blind. And until God opens their eyes, your wrangling and your disputing with them is not going to open their eyes. Only God can do that. We need to tell them the truth. We need to speak the truth in love. But we can do that without getting into contentious strife with people. So this does not mean that there will be no opposition or that there will be no contention. What it does mean is that contention and strife must not come from the believer. Even if it comes because of the truth, the believer stands for. So what I'm saying is when you stand for truth, there may be some contention there because you stand for truth, but that contention cannot come from you, must not come from you must not be because you feel compelled to, to get the last word, to prove yourself right. We can be sure there is opposition. We are not commanded to avoid opposition. We are commanded to avoid contentions that create strife. We are to be bold without becoming contentious. We're to be bold and courageous without generating strife. Even when the world is contentious and in strife toward us. You and I have no control over how people react to our speaking the truth in love. When we deliver the gospel, when we share the gospel, when we command people to believe the gospel, which is what the Lord Jesus commands us to do, He commands us to command the world to believe. And when we do that, we should expect that there may be a reaction that could be contentious and even uh, 
reason for strife, but it, it's not from us. It's from the world reacting to the truth we're speaking in love. So it may be toward us, but it should never come from us. This is why the fruit of the Spirit are essential. The fruit of the Spirit is essential in the life of the believer. Otherwise, we will find it very difficult to navigate this world. With even the most minor of reasons, we may fall into contention with one another if we're not walking in the Spirit, if we're not allowing the fruit of the Spirit to inform our reactions. Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, addresses this contention and strife. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. He says, He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, what Paul's telling us to avoid, reviling and evil suspicions. So these men that Paul is warning Titus of, that Titus is warning the believers about, are men who are proud. They don't really know anything. They think they know a lot, but they don't really know anything. They're obsessed with disputes and arguments over words And from that come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. That's the unbeliever. That's the one Paul's warning the believers about. That never should describe the believer. That verse that I just read from 1 Timothy 6.4 must not describe the one who is a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul is saying you need to avoid these contentions that lead to that behavior. That should never be our witness. And then he goes on in the same verse, Titus chapter 3, verse 9, and he says, avoid strivings about the law. Now, this word strivings here is an interesting word. These strivings are conflicts that are more severe and serious. The word translated contentions describes a level a level of strife or quarreling that does not go to the level of striving described here when he says strivings about the law. Avoid strivings. The word striving here is a much stronger word indicating serious conflict that could be physical or non-physical. But clearly the strivings he is talking about here, that he's warning us to avoid, these are intense and bitter contentions and conflicts between people. We are to avoid these types of conflicts, these intense strivings in the flesh. This is where people go to fisticuffs. This is what happened when Stephen spoke the truth to the Pharisees And they became so angry in their strivings, they took up stones and killed him. Not just because it was the law, but because they were that angry, that enraged by his words. When you read that account in Acts, you see that Stephen was not enraged. Stephen was not striving with them. He was simply speaking the truth. And that speaking the truth that Stephen 
did resulted in his death because those Pharisees, those religious leaders were that enraged and angry. Paul is writing here and he's saying we cannot engage in that kind of striving, that we become so angry, so worked up, that we are tempted to physical violence or, as Jesus said, even in our heart and in our mind, the desire to do that against someone, even if we would not act on that physically, we should not become so angry that we reach that level of striving. That is sin, the Bible says. So why does Paul write to avoid these things? Well, he tells, it, tells us exactly why in this verse. Because for they are unprofitable and useless. We avoid these things because they are unprofitable and useless. That description of what these strivings produce or do not produce does not need a lot of explanation. There's no hidden meaning here. They're unprofitable and they are useless to the believer and to the church and to those that we might be trying to give witness to because these types of interactions are unfruitful. They do not edify or build up. In fact, they tear down. These types of strivings literally suck the life out of those involved directly or indirectly. When we stand for truth, when we speak the truth in love, when we are rejected and spoken ill of and lied about, how are we to react? Well, Paul is saying here we are not to react with foolish disputes. We're not to react with contentious strife. We're not to, to enter into serious conflict or strivings. All of these are unprofitable. They're all useless. They lead to nothing good. This is true in dealing with those inside the church as well as those outside. Inside the church, such strivings are toxic and detrimental to the life of the body. And this is why Jesus gives clear instructions on what to do when an offense has been committed. You know, this is where... This is where we talked about gardening today in Sunday school, and we talked about, you know, dealing with weeds in our lives, spiritually speaking. And, and we've all have gardens, we've all attempted to garden, right? And we've all killed up fresh dirt, and it looks wonderful, and we planted our plants or put our seed in the ground, and then the, the plants start coming up, and it just looks spectacular, right? But it doesn't take very long. I mean, just in a matter of days, uh, it doesn't take long at all, and weeds start popping up. And if you don't go out and you if you don't go out and deal with those weeds, if you let those weeds, those little bitty tiny weeds, if you just let that little bitty tiny weed go, thinking that it's no big deal, you're going to walk out one day and your garden is going to be overtaken. And this is exactly why Jesus gives instruction. To his church. This is exactly why Paul is writing these things to the church. Because inside the church, such strivings, such contentions, such divisions, even the little bitty things that we think aren't a big deal, they are detrimental to the life of the body. And this is why Jesus gives clear instruction concerning these things. For those who are perpetrators of such strife, especially for their own gain, and this is what Paul's dealing with here 
in this letter, there are men coming into the church creating strife for their own personal gain. Paul instructs Titus to reject these men after they have been properly warned. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. So what are we to do? We are to reject a divisive man. We are to exclude them in their divisiveness. Jesus said to do this. The Apostle Paul says to do this. But we don't do it first. We do it after a proper process that the Scripture lays out has been followed. This is dealing with those inside the body. This is not about people out in the world in their sin. This is about those in the church who are in sin. We know this from Paul's letter to the Corinthians and his letter to the Romans. Those outside the body are not the ones inside dividing. It's the people inside that are creating divisions within the church. Paul instructs us that we are not charged to judge those outside the body, but we are to judge those inside. Yes, I said that word. We are to judge those inside. How else can you bring correction? How else can discipline be brought if there is not a judging of the sin or the offenses that are being committed that have to be dealt with? you got to judge whether that's a tomato plant or a weed. And in your judging what that is, you need to pull the weed out. You can't just blindly say, oh, you can't judge. I can't judge weeds. You know, that's not my place. God says, don't judge weeds or they'll judge you. No, you better judge the weeds. And when you find out that's a weed, you better pull it up. You better judge what is sin inside the body in your life. And when you see it and you discern that it's sin based on God's word, you need to pull it up. And if you can't, Jesus said, here's how you can get help getting rid of that weed in your life. So Paul instructs, it's not those outside, but it's those inside that we need to deal with. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Question mark. The implied answer is, I don't have anything to do with that. Do you not judge those who are inside? The implied answer is yes, absolutely. That's who we judge. Not those outside, but those inside. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves, from within, put away the evil person. Then in Paul's letter to the Romans, he instructs the believers to mark those who are maliciously causing division. He doesn't put the word maliciously there, but that's the implied understanding. He said, mark those who are causing division. Contrary to the doctrine, contrary to the teachings that Paul had given them. Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, inside, brethren, inside the church. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. And just as Paul instructed the believers in Rome, Paul instructs Pastor Titus to reject or to avoid those who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which he had taught them. When sin brings a division, and that's what sin does, in the garden, sin brought a division between man and God. Sin always brings a division. 
Whether you want to ignore it or not, sin brings a division. When sin brings a division, we must mark it and act according to sound doctrine. In other words, we don't just fly off and do our own thing, what we think. We go to Scripture and find out what God has prescribed for us to do when sin has become apparent. We're to mark it, we're to act on it according to sound doctrine. That may be a simple apology between two people who have become offended. Or it could be the application of church discipline for those who are unrepentant and continuing to be divisive. So it can go from, I think I need to apologize to this person. I think I, think I offended them, purposely or not. Or it could be, bring them before the church, and if they won't hear the church, then cast them out and treat them as a heathen. You know, churches don't do that today in our modern world. Because we're too worried about getting seats in the seat and money in the bucket so we just don't say anything because we don't want to offend people. And when we don't do that, you're like a gardener who refuses to go out there and pull the weeds and before you know it, your garden is overrun. And this is why in a city as small as Taylor, you've got 60-some-odd churches, because I will venture to say the majority of those, if not the vast majority of those churches, were founded off of church splits because people wouldn't deal with their sin. I am so happy to be able to say that Christ Fellowship Church was not founded off of a split. It was founded by a pastor who came here and just sowed this work and did the hard work of building the kingdom. And so those things happen because sin is not dealt with. Now, I'm not saying there's never a time when a split needs to happen because sometimes that's what needs to happen because sin won't be dealt with. And so the only thing is to count them as heathens and separate yourself from them. This is why we have old mainline denominations that have gone through this transition. You know, it's why the Presbyterians have so many different denominations. And you can look at them, and they are successively, from the oldest to the newest, many of them become conservative because the old guard allowed sin to flourish, and they wouldn't change, and so we're going to separate ourselves from here because we can't approve of sin. Same with the Methodists. Same with Baptist churches, same with Lutheran churches, same with non-denominational churches. It's, it's, it's not, it's an equal opportunity destroyer, compromise is. And this is what Paul is saying, this is what Jesus instructs us concerning, don't compromise. Don't think that little thing is something that you can ignore because it will rear its ugly head and create greater division and greater destruction. So we're not talking about dividing over a simple matter of opinion or secondary issues that are not essential. We're talking about taking a firm stand against sin and those things that are destructive to the body of Christ and that are destructive to sound doctrine. 
We must never compromise when it comes to sin. Paul goes on in this verse and he says, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. So Titus chapter 3 verse 9 gives us this progression. Avoid foolish disputes. These genealogies, these things that we, or verse 10 that we, we get into, reject a divisive, a divisive man after the first and second admonition. So Paul instructs that we take a firm stand, that we be ready to reject the unrepentant man causing divisions after the first and second warning. That's what the word admonition means. Jesus also gave instruction concerning a divisive man, which no doubt is where Paul gets his information in writing and teaching these doctrines to Pastor Titus. Let's read Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. So Paul says, reject a man causing divisions after the first and second warning. Jesus writes in Matthew 18, 17, and if he, the offender, refuses to hear them, that is the church, the, the, the witnesses that went to them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, you don't deal with them. You don't have a relationship with them. They've been excluded. So Paul writes that we are to note such men. He writes this in Romans. We're to avoid them. Jesus said we are to consider them as we would an unbeliever, meaning we treat them as though they are not members of God's covenant people and the accompanying benefits. Why do we treat them as heathens? Because there are benefits to being members of God's covenant people. Today, you're going to get to partake in one of the greatest. There is no greater benefit than coming to this table each week and taking the body, taking the bread, and taking the cup, signifying the body and the blood of Jesus. That is a benefit you have as a covenant member of God's people. But when sin is not dealt with and is unrepentant, and after you've been duly warned as the Scripture prescribes, then that person is cut off from the table. That's one of the benefits. You know, when you look at church history, it's pretty amazing. One of the most powerful and extreme things the church did, they would cut off whole communities from coming to the Lord's table. This happened a lot during the Reformation, leading up to the Reformation. Pope would, would issue an edict, and that, that city, no more communion to any believer in that city. And, and when the people were cut off from the table, it became a big, big deal. Popes would use that as political tools to get rid of kings and rulers, knowing that the people would revolt because they can't come to the table now. And if they can't come to the table, they're not in proper communion and relationship and covenant with God. Never underestimate the privilege, the benefit as God's covenant people of coming to this table. And so Jesus lays out a process that we're to go through if an offense occurs. Now let's go back and look at the previous two verses in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother 
sins against you. Now, ladies, you remember, this word brothers is, is, is not just talking about men. It's talking about all people. So, ladies, you're not off the hook here. You can't just offend your husband or offend your brother, <laughs> and it doesn't apply to you. It does apply. It applies to all of us. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So when you're offended by someone, you go to that person and tell them that you're offended. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But what if he won't hear you? If he won't hear you, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, you and the witnesses you took with them, with you, tell it to the church. If he won't hear you the second time, then go to the church and say, we've gone to, to our brother, we've gone to our sister, we've gone to this person, and they will not, they, they will not reconcile. And Jesus said, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you a heathen, a tax collector. So before we just reject a person who's committed an offense or who may be causing division, we are to go through this process and make sure all has been done to facilitate repentance and restoration. Even the act of excommunicating the unrepentant offender, as harsh as that may sound, is an act of God's grace to bring repentance and restoration between the offended parties and the entire church. Paul's instruction about the first and second admonition comes from Jesus teaching that we go to our brother or to our sister and give them an opportunity to make things right. And if there is no repentance, we go back with a witness or more than one witness. And if there is still no repentance, we tell the church... And if they will not listen to the church, then that person is to be rejected and avoided until there is godly sorrow, godly repentance, and restoration over the offense committed. The wrong, in other words, is to be made right, thus signifying true repentance and restoration, restoring unity to the individuals, the parties that were offended, and so restoring unity to the entire body. And ultimately, this is what Jesus and this is what Paul is dealing with. Yes, the Lord and the apostle are concerned with individual disputes, but more than that, they want to make sure that the church as a whole is not overrun and torn down because of these little things that start like little weeds that will take over your garden. Take over your church. And before you know it, in a little bitty town like Taylor, you got over 60 churches because people couldn't get along. When the Bible gives us a prescription of how they are commanded to get along. So those unrepentant and causing divisions in the body are in sin, Scripture teaches us. And they are, as Paul says, self-condemned. Titus chapter 3, verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned, reject a divisive man, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and self-condemned. Paul writes to those 
He writes, those who cause divisions and do not repent, they're warped, they're sinning. And they're already condemned. This reminds us of the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, when he says, he who believes in him is not condemned. If you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're already condemned. That's why the scripture says Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already under condemnation when he got here. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. When we refuse to forgive, you're not hurting the person you won't forgive. You're hurting yourself. And you are under condemnation because you will not in faith obey God and forgive. We are to reject a divisive man knowing that such a person is warped, is sinning, and is self-condemned. And he who does not trust in the name of the only begotten Son of God is condemned. And our inability, our unwillingness to reconcile is a point of faith that we need to deal with. And this is what Paul is telling Titus so that he can teach the people, so that there is soundness and health in the church. Paul gives these instructions for the sake of the church, her unity, her health. Most importantly, listen to me, church, for her fruitfulness to God. In the gospel, a body cannot function properly if it's not functioning in unity. And that's why we are commanded to guard the unity of the church. Philippians 2 Verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's what it means to love the body. That's what it means to love one another. We are to look out for each other's interests above our own, at least as much as our own. Our unity was the prayer of Jesus for the witness to the world, John 17, 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. We reject divisiveness in the body of Christ because Jesus died that we would be one just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. Those are the words of Jesus uttered before he died for our sins so that we could be one with the Father. And if we are one with the Father, we must be. We are commanded to be one with one another. Paul ends his theological instruction here for Titus. He next gives practical instruction to his spiritual son as well as instructions to others. Titus 3.12, when I send Artemis to you and Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. 
practical instructions concerning those who will be coming and going in service of the Apostle Paul and the work of the ministry. Paul instructs that not only should their needs be met, but that they should lack nothing for their journey. In other words, treat them the way that you want to be treated, provide for them the way that you would want to be provided for to make sure that they feel like that they are as much a part of the family of God as you are. Paul further instructs Titus concerning the people in practical matters. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verse 14. And let our people also learn to maintain good works and meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Learn to maintain good works and meet urgent needs that they may not, that the people may not be unfruitful. Paul instructs Titus to teach the people in basic points of diligence and hospitality leading to fruitfulness, maintaining good works and meeting urgent needs. This is the nitty-gritty of practical faith and theology that requires that we get our hands dirty in the daily grind of life. This is the reality of our faith and the love of God lived out every day in our lives, maintaining good works, meeting urgent needs, is making manifest His life. This is the working out of your salvation with fear and trembling. This is doing unto others as you would have others to do unto you. This is loving God and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. In fact, as Jesus has loved you is the way we're commanded to love our neighbor. This is fruitfulness. This is the life of the believer and the life of the church. Then Paul closes his letter with final greetings and instructions. But I want this to soak in with you. This is the life of the believer. This is fruitfulness. This is the life of the church. Don't gloss over these things. Don't gloss over these final instructions that Paul is giving to the church because they're instructions for us today. And when you look at the current environment in our nation, in our city, you realize that this is not, this is not happening. And if you think it's just out there and it doesn't touch you in here, you're wrong. It does. We're all, we're all prone to be tempted by this. We're all prone to fall prey to this. And the Bible says don't do it. Don't allow it to happen. Then Paul closes with this, this, final, um, this final greeting and these final words of encouragement. All who are with me greet you. Paul writes, and he says, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Greet those who love us in the faith. Paul distinguished those who loved him in the faith versus those who did not. This is not love in the faith with lip service, in other words, but love and faith with works. We can say we love. We can say all kinds of things, but the proof is in the, the pudding. It's in the eating. It's not what I say, it's what I do. And this is what Paul means here when he says, greet those who love us in the faith. There were a lot of people that said they loved Paul, but they didn't. And Paul knew the difference, and the difference was not just in what they said with their mouth, but what they actually did through their lives. Then Paul's declaration of grace be with you all, amen. Paul ends with this familiar, eternal theme of grace. 
It's common throughout all of his writings. It's all by his grace. It's grace alone, and it's grace all the time. That's what we live by. Apart from his grace, we are nothing and we have nothing but certain darkness and death. But for his grace being with us, we have no hope. There is no hope apart from his grace. Thank the Lord for his grace. Amen, church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let us prepare to come to the Lord's table. There is no greater benefit you have as God's covenant people than to come to this table. I pray that you will recognize that. And you will come accordingly in faith, knowing that it is by grace that you have been accepted in the beloved. It is by grace you come and eat and drink this feast that God has provided through his son. Here is your charge. May we take seriously Paul's charge to Titus, which is a charge for us today. May we avoid foolish disputes. May may we avoid contentions and strivings that are not only unprofitable and useless, but they tear down the body. May we seek unity and the building up of the body. This will require hard work, the hard work of maintaining good works and meeting urgent needs, whether those needs be physical, emotional, or spiritual. This is the work of the believer. This is the work of the church. It is the work that is required to maintain unity and the building up of the body and all things. This is what is required for our unity and our witness to the world that is seeking to divide and conquer the church. We must not aid them in that evil work by becoming lax to our own fears our own faults, our own insecurities, and our own temptations. Let us do the work of God with all our heart and loving one another, even as Jesus has loved us. Amen? Amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.